Well, little Mandark. I mean, better villain than Doctor Doom, am I right? <laughs> I had water in my mouth, my nose. <laughs> Hello everyone, and welcome back to Talking During the Movie, the show where two jackoffs talk about new movies and movie news. I'm James. And I'm Mike. And this is episode 19, Mike and James 4, The Quest for Peace. At long last, we're back. Yeah, we are. Uh, So last Saturday, when we usually record, um, we were both moving to new places. On the Uh, same day? Yeah. On the exact same day, we did not plan it out. <laughs> I was just like, "Yeah, I'm moving," and Mike's like, "Yeah, I'm moving too." He's like, "Oh, well, oh, well, uh, we're not gonna, we're not gonna get this show done, are we?" <laughs> I mean, we wanted to, and we really tried. It just didn't happen. So, um, yeah, I am in a brand new, awesome apartment, though, and and I'm in a brand new, awesomer apartment. Oh, well, I didn't know that yours was awesomer, so that made things a little awkward. Yeah, um, I know. It's uh. Yeah, so uh, naturally also my podcasting is going to be significantly superior to yours. Yeah, I imagine it's going to be off the charts. Much off like, the charts, much like the biochemistry of, of a certain Doom, film. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, also another acceptable excuse, I think, for why we couldn't podcast uh, this last week was uh, because both of us, James, I believe we're still a bit catatonic from uh, having seen that film. That uh, one film. That one the, film. One of the four films which we are going to review this episode to really right. just, boom, get back into it. We're making and... up for lost time by kind of going back over the last couple of weeks reviewing the key films of each uh, that, that came out each week. Uh, we're going all the way back now. I know it already seems like a distant memory. In fact, I'm sure some of you have already happily forgotten. Uh, I hope so. We're going to – I hope so too, but we're going to jog that memory of uh, – of Josh Trank's Fantastic Four, and I'm calling it Josh Trank's Fantastic Four because I'm not going to let him absolve himself of responsibility and ownership of this piece of shit. We're not going to let him say, like, oh, I had a much cooler, darker idea for this, and it's like, well, you didn't really fight for it, now did you? Mm-mm. Hmm. Hard enough. Uh, We're going to follow first, that up. But Damn first. But first. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck. Go ahead, totally. Totally cut him off. Uh, first, we're going to get into the news, but after Fantastic Four, we're going to review Shaun the Sheep, Straight Out of Compton, and The End of the Tour, which is not The End of Watch, uh, which is a film call by that. David Ayer that Mike is going to confuse it with several times throughout the podcast. So I'm going to call it that at least that. five times. I, yeah. I, it's happened. So uh, I mean, you if know. you haven't seen that movie, do so. I believe it's still on Netflix, maybe, or, or something like that. It's 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 worth a watch. I, pretty, I really like it. It was pretty uh, good. I think you I think you oversold it to me, but it was pretty good. But uh, uh, barring this, we will not have any actual discussion of end of watch this this episode. So if I say end of watch, it's just just no now. I mean end of the tour, starting now. Starting right now. <laughs> starting right now. All right, but we got some news. Let's go with the just the boring box office stuff first. Um, and that's one of the third film we're going to review today, straight out of Compton, still on top, which I was surprised with until I realized that the films that came out this week were Sinister 2, um, Hitman, Agent 47, and American Ultra, with also Jesse Eisenberg, the star of the end of the tour, which we're going to review later in the show. I keep saying that. Yeah, we're not we're not doing any films that just came out, I think, this Friday, um, but I feel like we have a pretty good reason for that, because do, do does anyone really want to talk about any of the films that came out this Friday? <laughs> 
I did I did see American Ultra. Uh, oh yeah, so, yeah. Uh, Th- that is the one that piqued my interest the most, and I'm kind of bummed it's been getting the reception it has been. But um, looks to be the the less the, the the least poisonous of all the of all the movies that came out. Um, I mean, also I guess just who would have thought that there would be such an audience for an NWA biopic? Um, yeah, I'm I'm, I'm happy really there. It, I'm yeah. happy there is, but I mean. <clears throat> It's it's not your conventional summer hit, and I think that's why it's been making news. And uh, it, it's good. I don't know. It's uh, this year's already been kind of weird in terms of its box office returns. Like I I didn't understand why Furious Seven ended up being one that, of the that was an anomaly, man. Of all time, I, I don't understand. I still don't understand. Um, and Universal Studios setting records now because it's beating Disney. It's beating Disney in their market share this year. It's, it's and that's nuts. yeah because of. Furious 7 and Jurassic World, another yep. film that just, like, is a tragedy that it's getting so much money. Yep. Um, um, but also, a thing about Straight Outta Compton is that it easily beat the competition this week because they didn't really have any competition. But the week it came out, it came out alongside Guy Ritchie's uh, The Man from UNCLE, The Man from UNCLE, depending on how you want me to enunciate the acronym. But <clears throat> that one I did see, and... Having seen both, I had a much better experience with Straight Outta Compton. So, not that the people buying the box office, buying the tickets, are going to know one way or the other, but uh, I think the better film won that week uh, pretty clearly, which was a little disappointing. I was expecting a little more fun from uh, Guy Ritchie in this go around after after the uh, Sherlock Holmes films, but I. Uh... I like this because it doesn't fit with Hollywood's general uh, their their idea of what a profitable demographic is. They're like it, it mainly in terms of like you know refusing to give people of color or anyone who's like not a white heterosexual male uh, center stage in their movies, and because with the idea being that they're not going to be as successful or whatever bullshit they they come up with to justify that. So. Um, I'm not saying Straight Outta Compton's going to revolutionize the industry or anything, but I'm kind of hoping it's maybe one step toward uh, getting some more diversity in mainstream films. You can find it, you know, I, there are all kinds of people making movies, but very few of those get a, a strong voice in Hollywood. And well, yeah, uh, I mean, you you see like uh, Twelve Years a Slave, like it won Best Picture. It's awesome, great, but how many people saw it in theaters? And how many of those people who did then did see it in theaters? complained that they didn't want to be subjected to that level of uh, violence and brutality on their nice Sunday, Saturday nights out of the, out of the theater. What the fuck um, did you think you were going to see? It, I'm sorry, it, I, will, uh, I, I digress. It's a, con- it's a conversation for another time, but it's, it's still a relevant point to bring up that, like, you can't just not look at something that's very prevalent and that is a perspective and a point of view just because you it's uncomfortable to you or you don't like it. So, um, I'm I'm happy. I think this is good news, but you know, we'll we'll, we'll see how it manifests in the future. Something that is not good news oh. is we we mentioned Jurassic World. Jurassic World directed by a man named Colin Trevorrow, um, who I think honestly, like as hard as we've been on Josh Trank, we we really overlooked Colin Trevorrow in in Jurassic World. Maybe that was justified. Maybe it wasn't. But I feel like as the as the director of the film, we sort of gave him a free pass. In this um, in this okay. shit show, um, it's okay. Let me let me uh, clear up my perspective on this here. Colin Trevorrow did not do anything 
overtly, offensively bad directing Jurassic World. He just let himself be such a uh, such a tool for the studios to yeah. pretty much resort to the most like trite and cliche, uh, you know. <sighs> just the worst kind of blockbuster formula that's been old for 20, 30, fucking 50 years. And he uh, also didn't, like, bitch about the reviews afterwards, which made Josh Trank an easier target. But at the same time, the reviews weren't as bad for Jurassic World. Although, if you told me, if you asked me which one I'd rather be seeing between Fantastic Four and Jurassic World, I'd have to think about it for at least a few seconds. Oh, I wouldn't at all, but, I mean, that doesn't mean I want to see either one. I like Yeah, really. <laughs> Point, case in point, I view Colin Trevor as like a, a, a neutral. I, he's he's not he, he's someone who is entirely as good as who's, who his bosses are. Um, and, and he yeah. is now in line potentially to direct Episode Nine. Was it yes, uh, Star the, the Wars? Final, the final entry of the Star Wars sequel trilogy after Ryan Johnson. So J J Abrams is directing this first uh, Episode Seven, the first installment of the trilogy. Then Ryan Johnson, one of my personal faves, and I think yours as well, mm -hmm. uh, doing uh, of Looper uh, and uh, several others, and Breaking Bad, uh, doing episode eight, and then um, now Colin Trevorrow has been announced for episode nine. I was really just hoping they'd give it to Ryan Johnson again. But... <laughs> I mean, it seems like because uh, one of the things we commented on was that in when reviewing Jurassic World is that we really have no idea who Colin Trevorrow is as a director. It, and this film and Jurassic World did nothing to uh, help help that help that confusion help that mystery. Um, whereas J.J. Abrams and Ryan Johnson, we both know who they are. We know what they could bring to um, Star Wars series. I mean, at least we have an we have an inkling. Whereas you know they, they have a personality. Some... They have a personality that that manifests itself on screen. Yeah, and then they pick Colin Trevorrow to direct Episode Nine, someone who we haven't really seen enough of to say like, oh, what he what is he going to bring to this series, this beloved series? So it makes us a little skeptical. And honestly, since we're still really angry in retrospect at Jurassic World, maybe maybe our reception is a little more negative than uh, it should be. But I don't know. I just wish they picked someone with more more established style. I'm just mad that Jurassic World is being chalked up as a major success and a career maker for anyone because it, at the very best, it deserves to be a marginally successful, forgettable summer blockbuster. Like it, yep. it does nothing; it earns nothing more than that. And I think I think that my frustration comes from the fact that it's being, uh, you know, that this is apparently now making careers. This this movie, which I kind of view as being. The, the the worst kind of uh, the worst kind of tired you know it's it, it's coming out the same summer as, as Fury Road and I know I've, I've had this rant before mm. but like why are people still why, why are people not more upset that this is still what studios think they want unless this is actual people want and maybe me and Fury Road and George Miller and everyone else who loved Fury Road can are, are just out of touch but no sorry um uh, d demand more from your summer blockbusters. That's all I'm saying. And I, I, who knows? Maybe his bosses at Disney will steer more in the right direction. I mean, even his first effort, which is uh, Safety Not Guaranteed. I mean, that kind of seemed like a movie to me. It was like, you know, once again, kind of middling, and uh, it kind of came more out of the, um, the particular like mumblecore genre it was coming out of and mm -hmm. its financial constraints than I think any kind of real like directorial insight 
So yeah, people simply liked it because it was it it suffered the standard setbacks that most like indie directors do, and they sort of wanted to cling on to that. And and given what it was, like it, it was fine. Like I don't I didn't see much that was inherently wrong with the movie, and I actually enjoyed it at several points. But um, it, it again didn't give me any idea who Colin Trevorrow was. And then he goes on to make Jurassic World. And at very least, as you said, at very least, he let, like, the studios just puppeteer him and didn't put up much of a fuss, which, I mean, you could argue that that's as good as, as great a sin as what Josh Trank's did. But I wouldn't necessarily make that argument, but I could see that happen. Yeah. Um, um, I mean, who knows? He, he could do a lot with yeah. Star Wars. Maybe. It's, it's very far off, for one. It's, so. it's, it's far off. I'm just saying from his most recent effort, and even from his first film, I'm, I'm not terribly excited about this. Um, I think I was but, probably even more irate about it when I texted you, James, about it, but... Yeah. <laughs> I, think I've, I think I've calmed down a little bit. I, I tend, to, tend to overreact to some things. Not, 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 uh, not Ryan Reynolds. I mean, he, fuck him, but... <laughs> you know, other things. My reactions are always very, very level-headed, too. Yes. I'm yes. <laughs> calculated. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, I had I had an opposite reaction to um, kind of a complimentary piece of news that came out, I think, two days ago. Yeah, um, you recently brought up Fury Road, so we're I right did recently it. bring up Fury Road, so it, it, it goes in seamlessly to say that uh, according to rumor, and this is very important to say because sometimes these rumors manifest without really any justification or elaboration whatsoever, uh, George Miller is directing the sequel to Man of Steel. George Miller, Fury, George Max, Mad Max Miller. George, George Mad, Mad Max, Max Miller. Miller. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. It's a better middle name than the one he has. I'm not sure what it is, but I know it's better. Um, He's earned it. He's earned it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I I was uh, I picked up the phone and saw Mike text me this, and I was like, no fucking way. And I kept repeating that out loud until I googled it to see that it was a legitimate rumor. I mean. As legitimate so, as rumors can be, I, I want to like, point out that the last rumor is kind of an oxymoron. <laughs> yeah, the last the last rumor I heard that was that was like this was when it, 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 these rumors you gotta understand it doesn't matter who is saying it unless it's like the director or studio head. If anyone else is saying it, it does not matter because the last thing I remember was um, when Gary Oldman was running his mouth off about the dark the Dark Knight Rises and what was going to happen, and he was saying that oh like Johnny Depp's going to play the Riddler and shit like that, and it, every, that shit blew up everywhere, and it was just a complete fabrication it seems like, or maybe it, maybe it stemmed from some co- like off the cuff conversation he had with uh, one, someone involved, maybe a writer, maybe the director, who knows, um, and then decided that it was gospel. So these you rumors, could, you, could just you cannot trust was... them. You can just imagine the execs at Warner Brothers just being like, oh my god, we have to shut Gary down. Just like like a bunch of suits on the phones with one another just being like, Gary's running his mouth off again, hurry! And like just deploying troops to shut him up. Yeah, yeah, get to him now. Um, yeah, if this is true though, thank the fucking lord. <laughs> Let's have a moment. Look, George Miller has officially proved that he is capable of directing action better than any of his contemporaries or even any of his successors that I've seen so far. Um, he is wonderful at combining character and comprehensible action scenes. Um, and he honestly has proved himself in, within the gamut of film genres. He's done kids' films. He's done, uh, you know adult Mad Max movies, he's done emotional family dramas like Lorenzo's Oil. He mm-hmm. he can do it all, and uh, he's kind of a... You know, before Fury Road came out, people kind of forgot about him. So, um, I'm happy his name's out there again, and uh, I'm, I don't want to see anything else by 
fucking uh, Zack Snyder. I, I don't. You know, people still say that he's a great visual stylist, and I disagree with that because I find his visual style really, like, bland and repetitive. It's something that you kind of get the gist of in the beginning of 300, and it's something he's never been able to shake in, what, the five or six films that he's made since. I yeah. I don't find him interesting, quite frankly. He's not, like, not offensively bad, but not a, I don't nothing, know. And, to, nothing to rave about. Nothing honestly, at all. George Miller is the answer to the to the Man of Steel series that I never would have thought to give. You know, if someone if someone asked me oh, what what needs to happen to uh, Man of Steel to make it to sort of make it a good series. I, you know, the uh, right answer to in my mind right now is George Miller. Would I have ever thought of that beforehand? Not at all, but it's fucking genius. The right answer in my mind. Summon the Wall Boys. <laughs> oh. Yeah, I we're both very it, happy about it. Yeah, it, he understands action movies. He understands them so well. Uh, much more so than uh, the next film we're going to talk about. Um, which I don't know if we want to transition just yet, but no, we can't. I, I won't need to get that out there. We can. But... Uh, we don't want to talk... I don't think I, we really want to talk too long about a rumor. No, uh, jo- Josh just, Trank just... fundamentally doesn't understand action movies, and I think that's the worst, point, worst part of Fantastic Four. Although there are many bad parts... Um, I think the worst part really is that uh, no one who was working on this film edited this film. I, I you know I, I'm sure they did understand to some degree just that that it was unsalvageable. But like, what is it with with Fantastic Four movies not understanding basic movie pacing? I don't. This now this one has almost the exact problem of its predecessor. Its the, predecessor did it better. I'm gonna it's, say it's, its predecessor though. Like so. Catching it on cable a few months ago, clearly mm-hmm. before I, I got any whiff of you know what would become of this Fantastic Four, um, I was pretty taken aback because in, in ten minutes they're up in space and then in fifteen minutes they're on the ground again with superpowers, um, and I don't know who any of these characters are except for their broad you know character traits like Johnny Storm is a you know a, a rebel bad boy whatever the fuck, um, Reed Smart. Jessica Alba is the eye candy, who's the love interest also, and doesn't really have much to do besides that. And Ben's Michael Chiklis. Uh, Michael yeah. Chiklis is the best friend. Um, so this movie kind of t- takes the op. The Josh Trank film kind of takes the opposite approach at the beginning, right? It's essentially like the first forty minutes is more plot setup than character development, I guess, but kind of going through the uh, the development of the technology that will eventually create the quote. Which hilariously shows uh, Sue Storm and, and Franklin Storm, her father, uh, scoping out the local high school science fair uh, yes. to find out. <laughs> to find out who ha- who might have the secret for their their project yes. they're working yes. on. Yes, with, with no explanation. You know, I was kind of waiting for the line to come. It's like we come. You know, Sue's a student here, but I'm I'm just here to support her. But blah blah blah. But no, they're they're just there. Um, looking for the next kid genius who can crack interdimensional time travel. And lucky for them, Miles, lucky for them, Miles Teller's been working on this since he was five. Miles like... Decided to put away his drumsticks and uh, and open <laughs> kit. And uh, but you know, James, also you're skipping. I think. Uh, Homer Crusher Dream Simpson, uh, Dan Castellaneta, the voice of Homer Simpson, who plays uh, p- plays Reed's unbelievably discouraging teacher, 
I mean... Oh, yeah. So, you know, there's a thing, you know, in movies, right? You kind of like seeing the teacher who's full of themselves and doesn't really see the genius of your main character. This is a trope. This is an old, old trope. Yeah. A million times. I'm not sure I've ever seen it done quite as, like, unintentionally comedically as this. Because not only it, it, when a young Reed Richards steps up in front of his class to talk about his dream of interdimensional travel, does the teacher just completely shut him down for no reason. Yeah, he says that the, the assignment was to say what you want to do. Now come back with a real career. Pro. Yeah. yeah. Um, so not only does he do that, which is bad enough, but at the science fair, seven years later, the same somehow the same teacher. He still has the same teacher seven years later, I guess. Yeah. Uh, and uh, he creates it. He makes a machine that can transport something to another dimension and bring it back. This is amazing. You can even see the blue aura around it. It's it's clearly doing something. And the answer, that the, the response that the teacher gives is, Mr. Richards, you are disqualified. This is a science show, not a magic... This is, this is a science fair, not a magic show. I don't see any real science happening here. This is after he, he, he made a plane go to another dimension and brought it back. A model plane, by the way, not a 747. A model, yeah, a model plane, excuse me. Um... <laughs> With with what are clearly uh, like what's clearly like damage to the plane, so it's clearly been somewhere. And the teacher's response is that no real science has happened here. He he created a fucking teleporter, yeah, <laughs> and brought it back. But and... luckily for him, the, the 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 science nerds who are trying to crack interdimensional travel for for what reason I'm really not sure. Um, I I think I, it was some something about resources. You know, oh, or... okay. So we're gonna save our planet. So yeah. basically, basically it's the interstellar approach, but, but not really given. Not really given the. I, I never thought I'd use interstellar's exposition as a positive, but not really given the, uh, the the, you know the the prominence in the plot that the that the problem. We didn't is. we didn't run out of engineers. We ran out of food. Yep. Yep. Okay. You got it. Hey, Jim. I pay my taxes. There are no militaries anymore. <laughs> James, another review. God damn it. <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, yeah, no, there, there was really... I, I, I was still... I was left thinking the entire time he's pitching this idea of inter interdimensional travel. Like, he hasn't shown that there's anything there that they're traveling to. Just that the maybe that there is another dimension they're traveling to, which has not even been established, as I said. Um, but well, yeah, well, that was the thing. Cause, he's cause... like, oh, no, the solution is out there. How do you know? How do you know you're not just traveling some rock in the in the center of the universe that has nothing salvageable on it? Why are we wasting this much money into this completely impractical possible solution? And uh, there's there's no real answer. There's no real answer to that, is there, James? No, there's not. And this is like just just a one of the many. La lapses in logic that you, on display well, here, and I don't think it's these are the most egregious at all no, no, no. in the movie. I was just going to say, I, James, right now I think we're describing the good part of the movie. Yeah, <laughs> the, the, the best part of the movie, I think. Um, I, I sorry, correction. Reed Richards wanted to teleport. That was he wanted to make a teleporter. He thought he was sending the plane to like the Gobi Desert or something. Yeah. Uh, and then the guy comes and tells him, no, it went to another dimension. I guess he knew that somehow. Um. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, cut to science. Science happening. Lots of science. Uh, they, 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 they recruit old, uh, 
not old, but like a, a fallen angel type of genius named Victor Von Doom, which is the least ominous name <laughs> in my life. Um, I know. I mean, I know that that name dates back to the com- or, or yes, origins yes, in the comics, but still, you could have picked something a little less. I know. It's it's that's not that's not on the movie, but still, whatever. Um, so you know, you got the old uh, uh, disgruntled former genius working with the new hotshot, and uh, they finally, I believe, about forty or fifty minutes in, they uh, they they make the machine. And uh, the U.S. government comes in. They want to use it for themselves. Um, and our, of course, anti-authority superheroes decide, no, we're going to go through the portal. And we're, we're going to go and plant the flag. And... We're going to be Neil Armstrong. Yeah. Be the Neil Armstrong of this, of this mission. We're not going to let the government do it. And so they, or at least not let them be first. So they go through with Kate Mara. I believe she's just on her computer like yeah yeah she was on her, on the computer in the lab so okay yeah I... but there were other people with her in that lab right there were like multiple people in that I lab I don't think in the immediate lab vicinity oh, so they didn't I remember feel the there being of the people blast, but... okay um so basically without getting too much into detail stuff goes wrong they lose Victor Von Doom in there and they all come back horribly you know with uh, uh, Awesome powers. They they come. I, I'm I'm trying to you know indicate that they seem to treat this as a terrible thing, even though they're all just like have these powers that. I think that goes back to this like dark thing that Josh Trank had maybe tried yeah, okay. to do at one point. He tried to make this this dark like body horror type reaction to this whole thing, um, and then just didn't care enough about it to fight for it. I, I'm just I'm just I'm sorry. I was just watching it. I'm just like wow, they're really trying hard to frame this as being not fucking awesome. Yeah, I mean, I, even even the first movie, like everyone else was having a good time, and then then uh, uh, Ben Grimm, Ben Grimm, uh, yeah, by Michael Chiklis, was like, "Well, I'm glad you guys are having fun. I'm a fucking giant rock." Yeah, you know? well, you know what though? I was kind of thinking about that too, because in that original movie, as trite as it seemed, um, you know, there's at least an emotional arc for Ben there. You know, he's oh, yeah. not, he loses his wife. He has to find a new love, and he has to accept himself. And, you know, that's maybe not groundbreaking. It's not Citizen Kane. But, you know, it's something. It's a, it's a way to connect with the character in some minuscule way. And this one, all that happens is Ben gets angry and then gets weaponized by the government and is just okay with this. Um, mind you, half the footage you see in the trailer of, like, of the thing doing doing cool stuff and, and blowing up tanks and whatnot is, is from... Essentially, a, a, a computer monitor that they're watching um, after a after a jump cut. It's not really, sorry, jump cut's not the right word, but they, but they cut um, to like several months later where he's been weaponized and is just using, you know, it is basically just a, a shill for the U.S. government in the military, basically. Um, and uh, yeah, and that's kind of that's kind of what him, the Invisible Girl, and the Human Torch do for a while while. Uh, um, our bold hero, Cap- uh, our bold hero, uh, Reed Richards, uh, ditches them. He just escapes for not a very clear reason. He's like trying to fix it, but not really. Yeah, he wants to try to fix it on his own. He doesn't want to be a, a tool of the government. I don't know. That that one didn't really stick with me as a uh, um, a, a lapse in logic. Again, though, these like m- my biggest problem was not 
how stupid this film was on several occasions, including the aforementioned line um, well, that we referred to that was uh, his biochemistry is off the charts, which doesn't fucking mean anything. James, James, you're jumping ahead, man. You're jumping ahead. <laughs> my, my problem was that this movie, as I said, just does not understand action. Go back to the first, the first Fantastic Four, um, and at least when you got back, you had, when they got back, they, there was a scene of them. I feel like there's a scene in like, like this in a lot of superhero movies where he's just sort of figured out his power and they get to use it for the first time in a way that helps somebody else. Like the, and, and that's what they do. They're all on the bridge. You know, they save, they save a, a bunch of people and everyone loves them. And, and that's the sort of scene that warms you up to the action. You're like, Oh, okay. I'm getting into this. You can say that that wasn't done well and you're right. That's fine. But at least it was done. And this movie the only action scene where you see them all fucking working together is the only scene where they fight Victor Von Doom, and it's the well, it, only thing that you could call an action scene. But yeah, but also what happened? Okay, so we're gonna—I guess we're gonna just gonna jump ahead to the, to the final action scene. So Victor Von Doom's obviously still alive. alive. He's now Doctor yeah. Doom, who is apparently the most like insane. He's a god. He basically he can just kill people, anyone, by by just you, looking at this them. This very right? uh, very unclear distinction between what he can and can't do. Yes, they do not they do not well define his powers. And he looks like the unfinished T one thousand like <laughs> like like digital storyboards from nineteen ninety one from Terminator two. Like honestly, he looks he looks like ass. And but then I guess when he's fighting the Fantastic Four, um. What happens is he can't kill them for some reason. Like just yeah, for some reason he can't just crush their heads. Like he can't just crush their heads. And then just something happens. I just, uh, they ran out of money or something. I I could not for the life of me, James, understand what I was looking at. It just it just looked like a bunch of CGI spooge all over the screen, and I could not. Just stuff was happening. It was just lots of kineticism and movement, and I I, I did not have any idea what I was actually looking at, and I didn't know why. There was a port. There were portals opening that I didn't understand why, and that didn't really make sense. I, I but think, I, yeah, I think he was trying to Von Doom, Victor Von Doom was trying to open a portal from their world, from Earth to his new world, so then everything would be destroyed, and then he could be happy. I don't know. Um, uh, okay. Uh, and then he, uh, so he, he's doing that, and a lot of people are dying, um, of course, because Josh Trank can't help himself. Um, and what happens to close the portal is again unclear. Um, but basically, they like burn it closed. I guess I don't know. I I I I literally couldn't. I I don't remember a time I was like less. Pers- like I, I I was thinking less during that whole final act than I have been in a movie in a long time. It's, Look, he's stronger than any of them, but he's not stronger he's not stronger than, than, all, than of them. all of them. And. I expected to see them, like, actively working together. They actually weren't. They were just like, okay, I'm going to go up to you and do my thing. And now, Johnny Storm, you go up to him and do your thing. Now, Sue Storm, you go up to him and do your thing. And then then uh, um, the thing pops out and punches him into the in, into the portal, and then it's over. Yeah. When, oh, when no, that no, happened, there's... I was like, wait. What? Is that it? That's it. Was, they're not even going to pull a, a villain isn't really dead thing. He's going to come back for like five more minutes. No, they're never going to yeah. do that. No, he's he just fell. He just they all that happened. Thing thing punched him. The thing punched him and he fell. He's and dead. He, and he fell. And yeah, he punched him into the into the portal. Yeah. Which killed him, I guess. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and um, oh no, I mean you're forgetting the final scene, James, where our bold heroes um <laughs> extort the U.S. government. By demanding 
through threat of violence yep. to let them use obscenely expensive research facilities and uh, training grounds. Um, basically on the level, if not bigger, than the one the Avengers use. Um, no, that's a different universe. Um, completely free of cost, free of charge, um, with to no actual benefit to the U.S. government. And uh, th- those are our heroes, ladies and gentlemen. That's how the movie... That's how the movie... It, it cuts to them, actually, in the training facility, enjoying the the benefits of the massively mm-hmm. expensive equipment that they just extorted from the government and, and they get uh, to decide what their name's going to be yeah they look out over the you know they look out over everything and they uh you know just they're like you know we need a name and they have the two two clichés back to back they have the obligatory we need a name scene and uh then they have the smash cut to title they have card. The smash cut to title card at the end credits. Yes, um, and also you know the, just the really I know this is part of the first cliche, but just the really she's like you know it's all pretty fantastic, isn't it? Yeah, so, spoken I by Jamie it. Bell, who we haven't even we haven't even mentioned about Jamie Bell how oh, yeah. completely fucking sidelined he was by being the... the thing. Like yes, yes, I felt bad for him. I felt I felt bad for the actor. I felt bad for all the actors really, but like Jamie Bell does not really go through an arc he just becomes the thing and then he's just a weapon he's 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 everyone's weapon at that point in the movie and And it didn't uh, i didn't even when he was the thing and delivering lines i didn't see any of jamie bell in there that could have been fucking anybody yep it's true um i don't even understand he so the thing is jamie bell is um reed richard's friend from school and They've been friends for about seven years when he gets recruited, when Reed Richards gets recruited to work on, you know, the big project that Kate Mara and her father started. And uh, they don't see each Then him and Reed don't see each other for a while. And in fact, he, Jamie Bell has no, uh, you know, role at all until they're about to covertly become the first people to travel to a different dimension. And then um, Reed calls Jamie Bell. Uh, ben Grimm for no reason at all. Just, just, hey, we started this. Now you're gonna come be a part of it for for some reason, even though he's never set foot in this lab. He doesn't know anything about anything that they're doing. Um, mm-hmm. He just wants to. Miles just wants to it, bring his friend along for the ride. You have to um, come. Why? Because I read the comic book, and you're with the <laughs> character, so you gotta come. Come on. He's like, no, you turn into a giant rock. It's great. <laughs> Jamie Bell's like, wait, what? What? what uh, bye. I'll see you soon. No. Um. Yeah, it was pretty forced, and I just, I could not believe, I expected to at least, at least be at the base level entertained, and they couldn't even pull that off. Uh, so, I, uh... I know, I felt really gross. Even just the look of this movie is disgusting. Like, the, the color palette, particularly in the other dimension, it it is, you know, dark, there's like Man of Steel dark, and then there's, like... Literally Mordor Dark. This is Mordor Dark, but the whole movie, basically. And I... There's nothing... I don't know, my eyes hurt after seeing this. I don't know if you have that experience. I just didn't want to look at anything. It was... (laughs) Well, it was so... Everything was so cheap about it, you know? Depressing. Yeah, it's cheap. It's bad CGI. It's... um, Man, I really don't have any good things to say. Yeah, I was I was totally fine like spoiling everything about this movie because if I stop you from seeing it, I've I've saved your life. Yeah, (laughs) I feel like I have a duty to tell you exactly why you shouldn't see this movie. 
James punched Doctor Doom into the portal and had it shut for some reason, and now you're safe. So you're all safe, man. All I had to do was punch him. Yeah. Let's move on because that movie yeah. was the hell out of me. I, I I hate Fantastic Four so much. It was it was honestly go see go see the Jessica Alba one. Go see the Chris Evans Jessica Alba Michael Chiklis one. It's it's better. It's somehow better. I don't know. It's how. not good. It's not, not good at all. It's not good, but it's better. Yeah. Um. What else? Shaun the Sheep. Shaun the Sheep. Right. Yeah. This is what you didn't really have much to talk about, but um, this was a quiet movie. It kind of came out under the radar. I, I saw a few trailers for it. I think for me, like when I, you know, uh, before Minions and Inside Out, um, and you know, it's by the same team that does like Wallace and Gromit and who did Chicken Run, and I, I really. I was attracted to it because I really like their work. They they do a lot visually. They do a lot of great visual comedy and don't really pander to you know what trends in kids movies are. And they don't even really I mean I wouldn't even necessarily call their previous work kids movies. Shaun the Sheep is pretty concretely a, a children's movie, but um you know, we don't have to spend too long on it, but I just kind of wanted to urge people to go you know, maybe check out Shaun the Sheep because it's you know, no, without the endorsement of something like like Disney or Pixar, it's I, I do think it's like pushing forward uh, kids cinema, you know, children's cinema just a little bit. It's it, it, it's the simplest story of all time. It's just like a sheep wants a day off, and uh, you know, in order to get that, they trick a farmer who then you know ends up rolling into the city by mistake and gets amnesia, so they have to go save him. That's that's about it. Yeah, I mean they they realize basically that it, I mean it's a standard like parent want, I mean child wants to get rid of the kid child wants to get rid of the parents and then realizes that he kind of needs the parents and then they go go back go about trying to not I, get you rid know of them. I don't even think they really have to discover that because it's pretty much just hey the sheep wants a day off he just he just wants to just wants to relax for a day you know that's all mm-hmm. and uh, I don't know this movie was just really pleasant like and mm-hmm. especially maybe it's just especially after I. I talking about Fantastic Four, I feel so warm to it. I'm like, ah, what's just a nice, completely innocuous, but really nice movie. It's it's not really one that demands much thought, but, like, I I don't know. Thinking about the... Thinking about the visual storytelling that goes into it and just the simplicity and streamlined nature of it is... uh, Honestly, I, I honestly think it's good for children. I think it's really, just in its own little way, it's kind of, um, moving kid cinema forward a bit um even in just like the really amusing sequences like like there are like wonderful jail jailbreak sequences that are played out entirely uh entirely visually there's um well i mean there's no dialogue in the movie so there's there's literally not a word of dialogue in the movie but like somehow they make everything i don't know they they even resort to like visual cues or not like you know written things like pictures um Mm -hmm. very seldom um or, or like written language, they 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 do it at a bare minimum. It like reminds me of like an old Murnau silent movie that tries to rely as little on intertitles as possible. Um, and yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I think in terms of like in terms of the movie being good for kids, it, although I maybe enjoyed this other film I'm about to talk about better at some certain occasions. I think overall, this is a better movie to take your kids and say Minions. You know? Oh, like, absolutely. It's it's yeah. 
I did. I no, actually, I saw this as kind of an interesting counterpoint to Minions because I've heard actually some acclaim. It, Minions isn't an acclaimed movie, but I've heard some acclaim um, in terms of like you know just an unconventional um, you know film for kids that with a thin plot and lots of like great visual gags and I, like I don't know. I saw the Minions being much more a product of like of focus groups and whatnot than Sean the Sheep was, which didn't really seem to have any agenda or adhere to like a market trend other than just like a really pleasant, uh, like you said, just a really fluffy, no pun intended, you know, cause he's a sheep. Um, <laughs> yeah. Like light kids movie. I don't know. It went down like a, it went down like a macaroon or something. It, it was very light, kind of like nutritionally devoid, but also like uh, clearly the work of someone who, or I guess in this in this case, two people, Mark Burton and Richard Starzak, um, who are the you know the same people behind Wallace and Gromit and Chicken Run. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the Ar- Ar- Ardman Studios, I think is yep. how you pronounce mm-hmm. it. Yeah, um, and, um, uh, you know they 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 get cinema and they get uh, I, I think they also get what kids respond to. They get that uh, they get images that persist in the mind. So I don't know. It's it's not a groundbreaker at all. Um, yeah, do you think this will have any uh, any horse in the race for... Uh, you think this is a horse in the race for Best Animated Picture at all? I would I want a nomination. I don't think it's anywhere... I, I don't think I would want it to win, although... I don't know, I'm trying to... Well, I mean, Inside Out's going to win. If there's Inside, justice Inside in this Out's, world, then Inside Out's going to win. But... Inside Out's going to win, but I can't even think of another film that I think should be nominated other than Shaun the Sheep. What, what other animated films have come out so far this year? Minions and Home, I think. Neither of which made any sort of splash. No, so at this point, yeah. Critical reception. I I will say, real quick on the best animated, uh, The Good Dinosaur is coming out later this year. I think it would be really cool to see Pixar have two nominated films in one year. I mean, they may just by name recognition. I hope The Good Dinosaur is true to its namesake good. (laughs) Um, Yeah. (laughs) It's kind of hard to tell at this point. I don't know. It looks a little... um, like, yeah, uh, I saw the, one trailer that I wasn't really impressed with, and then I saw a more extended trailer, and I was like, wow, this actually looks like it has well, some genuine feels to it. That first trailer um, really engaged me until I saw the character designs for the dinosaurs, which were really kind of gummy and cartoony and not particularly mm-hmm. uh, you know, up to Pixar's snuff, I think. Um, and they're still like that in the new trailer, but I know what you mean. Uh, the new trailer at least you know, indicates some sort of more... Uh, more character i guess than the first one indicated so i you know we'll, we'll, we'll have to see about the good dinosaur um i'm hoping we get two great pixar films in the same year for the price you know i almost said for the price of one but i will the price of one i will have to pay for both movies um <laughs> but uh but yeah sean the sheep i mean why, in, in why the not case of sean the sheep you know i'm i'm really having a hard time finding like very uh, a very complex you know, analysis of it. It's not a movie that necessarily I'm even going to revisit much in the future, but it's also kind of one that uh, I really enjoyed for what it was. And it's, you know, it's one of the few, aside from, it's like weirdly modern in certain times. Like you'll see references to, you know, uh, social networking and technology, which kind of seemed, it kind of, you know, jarred me for a second because it, Sean the Sheep seemed to be kind of taking place in like a timeless period, you know, until yeah. they, until they get to the city. Um, and I enjoyed, um, I, I thought it was done in a way that wasn't overly indulgent or that would date the movie too much, um, and had some pretty funny commentary on it. But um, you know, it's 
it, it it's it's not a film that is you know like I said it, it's not a complex film that demands analysis at least from my perspective yeah I don't really have much to say about it other After than the... it was enjoyable and I think that as you said it, it could in the current race I think it could get a, a best animated picture nomination just because it was so it was so simple simply good I mean it even I mean it even gives the, the individual sheep character without any dialogue and without names which is which is hard to do but you can kind of tell the personalities of each individual sheep and you know and tell who they are without you know a lot of direction or prodding which I think is impressive so I don't know I think it's a film that gets cinema I think that these are filmmakers that get cinema it's it's not one that's uh you know from my perspective now, there's not a whole lot of deeper connotation to it, but I also think that not enough people saw it. So, yes, I would I would say check out Sean the Sheep movie. Sean yeah. the Sheep movie is the name. Yeah. Now let's go on to the movie that we referenced earlier that uh, has won the box office for two weeks in a row, straight out of Compton, the movie about NWA and their their rise to power. In the rise to power, power. <laughs> there are overlords. The rise to uh, instantly recognize fame. Um, yeah, was... yeah. So, um... R- real quick, real quick, just a, a kind of a funny, funny little moment. I saw this movie with my roommate, and we were both through the, the entire movie. We we're like, damn. That guy looks just like Ice Cube. How do they get someone who looks <laughs> just like Ice Cube? <laughs> and then we see the credits that says O'Shea Jackson Jr. as Ice Cube, who is O'Shea Jackson Sr., and it all made sense to us. <laughs> yeah, it. I, I thought that I had that same experience, but just in the trailer. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, 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 I noticed it looked exactly like Ice Cube, and then I saw the stories about how, you know, he essentially had to play his father, um, Essentially, he did play his father, um, which is really cool. Man. That's a cool it's, thing to be able to do. It's cool and an odd experience. Um, mm-hmm. Try par- try playing a parent. It's really it's. I, I I don't know how you bring your perspective as their child to that performance, but um, man, he he nailed it. He. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, this is essentially like an ensemble biopic, if you will. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, it's it's a it's a biopic that covers not only many years but uh, mainly three different characters. Um, uh, Dr. Dre, the three main members of NWA: Dr. Dre, Ice Cube, and Easy Motherfucking E. <laughs> Easy Motherfucking E, yeah. Um, and the characters, I think, were all given pretty equal weight and things like that. So I was really impressed with that. My my question going into this movie, and I'm still not sure how well it held up to this, was that biopics as a whole, they always have a problem with... Well, the, the, the inherent problem with biopics is, do I show everything that they did throughout the one time period, or do I show the certain point, certain parts to sort of craft a narrative or craft meaning out of things that happened from their life? Uh, their lives and you know you really I think you have to try to avoid as best the first one as you can in favor of the second one so my question was how well this straight out of Compton could do that what do you think um I actually thought it was pretty overall successful but I actually do think it was a bit uneven uh in terms of its how often it resorted to biographical footnotes throughout the movie um, because there were certain periods of time where um, it seemed like 
this is just in there to kind of denote the next achievement of NWA or of Dr. Dre or of Ice Cube, like the next biographical pinpoint that, you know, just to, to you know, check it off a list. Um, well, yeah, I mean, even when they, like, things like, you would see, like, someone playing Tupac, you know, rapping while Dr. Dre, just in the background, right. basically, and it's Dr. like, Dre oh, I got Pac be, in there. Yeah. Dr. Dre would be fiddling with a, uh, like, synth piano, um, and then Snoop Dogg would come down, and, like, within one shot, they've worked out the opening verse to Nothing But a G Thang. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, I mean, stuff like that always kind of puts me out a bit despite and it's really hard i think to get it right because no matter what it always makes the creative process seem contrived it always i'm not sure it truly reflects what it what went into making that song and like i said i don't know i i can't i i wasn't there and i'm not i know about as much as this movie taught me about what nwa and dr dre and ice cube and and easy e are or were but Mm -hmm. um it, it seems like a poor reflection on how the creative process actually works. So stuff like that always takes me out. And I th- do think this movie had a fair amount of kind of contrived moments like that. Um, yeah. Like let's just show everything, everything they did rather than, I mean, honestly the first like third, I want to say I loved, I was totally in love with this whole, you know, Compton lifestyle, like these people who want to be uh, just you know, as they said later, they they just wanted to be like hood celebrities, you know, yeah. and then they they sort of rise to fame and they get the the consequences, the unfortunate and really unnecessary consequences that came with that fame, especially around that time, yeah. where no one respected them. The police were treated them like like thugs and gangsters when they weren't, and then they have the whole montage with not montage, but the whole sequence with uh, fuck the police, even though they weren't, you know, they they were told don't don't sing this song or we're gonna arrest you and then they do it anyway i was like with them and really excited can i just call out for uh, just for a sec the staging of that whole detroit concert scene uh toward i think it's still about the first third of the movie but um Mm -hmm. with the the both the performance and the fallout of fuck the police i I thought that was just a pretty masterful sequence um yeah no and and it was it was weird for me to see the film after that take a take a turn, but I, I was still on board with it because you know this they, they this is an important arc for them. The startup is that very united, rebellious. I mean, rightfully so rebellious, not just like <laughs> rabble rousers or anything. Um, group, and then see where they sort of start to split off, sort of become fractured, become much less united. I thought was interesting, and even the stuff with uh, like Suge Knight, I think was necessary. Um, but as Although, you, as you uh, said, and as I found out that there was a lot of like, I think there was some fat that could be trimmed here to make a more cohesive narrative. Um, yes, I, I will say this much. I think, um, so it, it, it's a, it's a biopic that covers three different stories essentially and mm-hmm. how they intermingle. Um, and honestly, I think it nails two of those three, but I found Dr. Dre to be pretty, uh, uh I, I found the portrayal of Dr. Dre to be kind of disappointing in the film because I don't think it ever really humanizes him in a really meaningful way. To me, he just kind of is the boy. He does come off as a viewpoint. I think you're right about that. I I think it's kind of informed by the public's veneration of Dr. Dre and not so much who he actually was. And this is kind of a kind of, I think given um, rise to a slight controversy over the movie and that it doesn't really depict Dr. Dre's like multiple accounts of, for example, having hit women. Um, and I mean, he's sort of the white knight I, of the movie. He's the I, white knight of the movie. And here's the thing. I, I'm not, 
I, I'm not really going to take a huge stance on that, although I do think that if it's a significant part of his history, it should have been depicted. But I do think it kind of reflects on, like, how I think the movie, which, by the way, was produced by Dr. Drain Ice Cube, so, I mean, yeah, <laughs> you got to be kind of realistic about this, but how much it's willing to um, really reveal about its characters. I, I got a lot about Eazy-E, I got a lot about Ice Cube, and I kind of felt that those were very... Um, if not complex, then at least very vibrant characters who I could at least latch onto and, and care about and follow mm. and be really engaged with their their story. And uh, Dr. Dre seemed like it kind of pulled the punches. It seems like he was just kind of a, the golden child who was passed around between different producers and who was fighting for his own independence, but who never really went through a personal struggle in and of himself. Um, I, as an aside... One of the characters, best characters, who's not in the three members of uh, NWA is Paul Giamatti as Jerry Heller. Yes, yes. I I fucking loved him in this movie. And uh, Jerry Heller, for those of you who don't know, is basically the Yoko Ono of NWA. You know, there's a lot of people, a lot of people credit with breaking up the original three. But he was there from the beginning, so it's... I know, it's weird. Yeah, you're right, you're right. I mean, it's 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 not a... perfect metaphor but i mean it's just someone who broke up the band basically um because you know the contracts that ice cube and dr dre were getting were much less significant and much less secure than that of easy ease who easy later admitted yeah this was you know i was taken care of so i didn't really care to shake things up and that's what jerry hello did meanwhile making lots of money and paul giamatti was perfect not just for the role but he played it so perfectly he played a complex he play, he played it very uh, nuanced because while it would have been really easy to just turn him into a clearly skeevy businessman who is trying to scam them from the beginning, he's got mm. it, like you can tell to some degree that he cares about these people, um, and you can tell what his engagement with them is, but you can also tell he's an opportunist. Yeah, That's I mean, a, he's looking out for himself also, he's, and then he he's, says that he's like, "Do I take care of myself? Did I make sure I'll, absolutely. I'll be okay?" Absolutely. A line he repeats, which I thought was strange, but I, I liked oh, I it. No, I thought it, it felt great. naturalistic to I thought, me. I thought it was great. It was kind of showing his desperation. Um, and I love that scene because you see him backed into a corner, and you kind of see him showing his face to Eazy-E for the first time. But mm-hmm. I don't know. I never felt like that was the only aspect of his character, and that that's what made him compelling to watch. Um, uh, you know, even... One scene that I hated when I was watching in retrospect really enjoyed was the one kind of earlier in the film when they're first recording uh, Straight Outta Compton, the album. And uh, the police kind of, you know... They they show up when they're outside, yeah. They show up when NWA is kind of outside eating food and uh, give them a hard time. Give them a hard time is a light word. They they damn near arrest them, um, make them get down on the ground. um, And Jerry Heller comes out and basically says, you can't treat people like this because of the way they look. Um yeah, he sort of dances around it, and then he really just nails it on the head. He's like, "You can't just come here and arrest these men because they're black." Right. You know? Yeah. Exactly. Um, and to you know, at that point in the movie, it seems preachy. I mean, obviously, you can't. And it also it, it seemed a little bit like they were galvanizing Jerry Heller's character it's as turning this... him into a turning into a hero. Right. In retrospect, though, there's a bit of an irony to that scene because that's essentially the image that he is monopolizing on to create. NWA as a national musical presence. So, yeah. <laughs> in that sense, it's also a hypocritical scene, and that actually added a new la- like a new layer of, I guess, uh, of nuance to that complexity, at least. Yeah. yeah, yeah, some some complexity to that scene and to his character. Because I do, you know, 
at that time, he's not being ironic. He believes in what he's saying, but he's also betraying it by, you know, doing what he's doing and also by not giving them their fair share. So, um, no, you're absolutely right. And I thought Paul, I, I thought Paul Giamatti would be kind of weird, a weird casting choice in this because everyone else is kind of a no name and, and, and pretty seamless in their role and undistracting. And Paul Giamatti is the one really big name actor who's, who plays a prominent role in this movie. And, you know, no, to my surprise, and I'm happy you agree with this too. He's comes as one of the major highlights. Definitely. Um, uh, movies directed by F. Gary Gray, which who, um, his his first film, and I think maybe his like, um, maybe his like you know most well known work up, up until this point was a uh, Friday, nineteen ninety five's Friday with Ice Cube and Chris Tucker. Um, yep. And uh, I think it's pretty funny because he they obviously talk about Friday in the movie with Ice Cube writing the script and even have an origin for the. Um, by Felicia. Felicia that came out of that movie which I th- thought was uh, not too on the nose I don't know it worked for me I thought they did it yeah no it, it was funny it was funny enough that I only I, I didn't immediately realize the reference I, I realized it like a few seconds later but I was like right. it, it was entertaining in and of itself and then it had another layer of entertainment you're like oh yeah from Friday yeah it was a, it was a wink without being obnoxious about it so I, I don't know and I, I feel like it's a tiny example but the the whole movie it's it's it, it deals with it, I don't know. It, it's a very it takes a very deft hand with its um, biopic material, um, and it I don't know. I feel like it does it. You know, omissions aside, and potentially you know, venerating people a bit too much, unrealistically depicting them as just geniuses without any real personal problems. I, I'm pluralizing it for no reason. I'm mainly talking about Dr. Dre because I think everyone else in the film has their fair share of character flaws. Um, mm-hmm. I do think it's a both a respectful and a, an informative biopic, and it, it, this is coming from I, I do not tend to like biopics, um, which isn't to say that I don't love them when they're done in, insanely well, but I think it's really easy to get into. Um, I, I feel like it's easier to fall into the traps of biopic than any other film genre because you just want to cover the things that made them the things that they're known for. You want to cover the big moments that that are recorded in biographies. Um, and it's a lot harder and t- more time consuming and more intensive to focus on little personal moments that kind of define a person ra- that, that reveal the people who made that art rather than just focusing on the creation of the art itself. So, And that makes the best transition ever to our, our next film, uh, the end of the tour. Mm-hmm. Wow. That was <laughs> un- yeah, you're right. It does. Um, so, End of the Tour is a film that was a Sundance darling this year, um, and it's finally getting... I'm not sure if it's a wide release, but it's getting... It, it's in limited theaters around the country now. Um, and uh, this is another really simple premise for a movie. It's essentially a recount of the four days or so that uh, Rolling Stone reporter David Lipsky uh, spent profiling uh, famed and late American author David Foster Wallace. Um during the last days of his book tour for the novel Infinite Jest, which, if you have not read it, is a mammoth. It is huge, vast standard. About 1,097 pages, I think they say. With, without footnotes. And there are not about three footnotes. There, no, there are about uh, uh, two or 300 pages of footnotes. Um, yeah, it's... That, that was a... Uh, let me just take a time out here. Uh, you, didn't even, you didn't even ask me to take that uh, plot synopsis, and you nailed it, so... Con- Congratulations to you. you know, thank you. It was a it's it's a simple 
plot synopsis. Um, this is a movie that's kind of sustained entirely on conversation, and the conversations between Jesse Eisenberg's David Lipsky and uh, David Foster Wallace, played by Jason Siegel. When I first heard and- that, I was I was kind of horrified um, <laughs> that that Jason Siegel was going to be playing David Foster Wallace. Then I heard he get you know him getting acclaimed for the role, and uh, this film kind of came out of Sundance looking pretty damn good. And it got really good reviews, and so. Yeah, Jason Siegel's only other dramatic role in his entire filmography is a movie, a good movie, called Jeff Who Lives at Home. Yeah. And if you haven't seen it, I think it's on Netflix, go ahead and watch it. But I, even even having seen that movie, I did not, I was not prepared for the dramatic chops that Jason Siegel showed in this role. Yeah. Um, um, and, and honestly, transformative as well. Yeah, so, I mean, really getting into a discussion of it, it's like, how good this movie is is entirely... Uh, dependent on how good Jesse Asbury and Jason Siegel are, because the whole film is sustained essentially on their interactions. Um, and I, w- and- I was worried not only what starting to watch this movie, not uh, sorry, not only hearing about this movie, but starting to watch it. You know, in the first in the early goings, <laughs> I was worried that like the criticism we've been we've been leveling at at certain comedy films as of late, their conversations wouldn't come off as cinematic to me in any way like you know i didn't you know i could have easily read the the interview you know <laughs> that that we're talking that's about that's true so, and i and i think through those earlier scenes i was still left wondering like okay why am i watching this um but i think that, that's a question that the film went, went on to answer in my mind satisfactory in a satisfactory manner i'm not sure how you were thinking that no i i agree with you um i actually really loved um end of the tour it may actually be my favorite film we're talking about today um I, I I would think that too. Um, um, and I want to counter what you said by pointing out I don't think that a conversation um, is necessarily uncinematic. In fact, I think no, no, it's not. Necessarily. In fact, I, th- I think I think one of the calling cards of a great director is being able to make a conversation cinematic, or at least to give um, some sort of purpose to how a conversation is shot, how it's edited, how it plays out, what the characters are saying and how they're framed um there's a lot that goes into conversation and i think uh so often people default to like kind of just shot reverse shots um, yeah and we talked about that with joel edgerton in, in the gift that you know it was a lot of just shot reverse shot but then in the times it broke away from that model it to, to create tension in the room was masterful and that's something that, that films that are largely dialogue based can do yeah um, now mind you i don't want to necessarily jump the gun and say james ponsult is a great director he's made only a few films, uh, the most notable being The Spectacular Now in 2013. Um, mm-hmm. But I want to say I think he gave sort of an aesthetic purpose to the conversation to this movie. Um, so much of the movie is shot in like the most, some of the most shallow focus I've ever seen in my life. I don't know if you've, yeah, it's, you can really only see what is directly in front of you. The lights in the background turned into just oblong, like little flickers. You can't really, you're almost disoriented and all you can see is the person directly in front of you talking, um, which I think really reflects the, what both David Litsky and David Foster Wallace are kind of doing to the other person they're talking to, um, which is kind of to probe beyond the surface and having a really difficult time doing that. And they're kind of obsessed with artifice and what actually is an artifice and what's being put on and what's the show that the other person is presenting to them and what the actual, and in opposed to who the actual person is. Um, and I think that that um, is a huge interplay that goes on in the movie. And it's something that isn't necessarily reflected in the script or in the interview. And that's why I think it's, um, I think it's relevant to make this into a movie. Um, and then also, what I think, 
Oh, just really quick. I think it also absolves the movie of any problems of, is this who David Foster Wallace really was? Is this who David Lipsky is? Um, because it's a movie that's entirely colored by perspective. Yeah, you're, you're right about that. My, what I really liked about this was that as someone who really had only the faintest idea of David Foster Wallace and Infinite Jest, you, I can tell you that you do not need to know about either of these people to see this movie. Um, mm. They and they they set it up in a way that's almost like entertaining too. That if you and you know David Lipsky, he didn't know anything about David Foster Wallace in the beginning. He didn't know anything about Infinite Jest. They set him up. He's reading. He's sort of outraged because he's reading a review of Infinite Jest that describes David Foster Wallace as um, jo- joining writing as Paul Bunyan joining the NFL. Uh, you know, just like something that it's not even fair. It eliminates all competition. And then his wife is like well, maybe you should just read it. Maybe it is that good. And then there's a shot of him reading it. And he's like, fuck. Shit. shit. Yeah, shit. <laughs> it's like, shit. That was, that was a good So it, it sets it up perfectly as like, oh, is why is this guy a big deal? Because the, the main, the protagonist of the movie, the person you're following, is going through those same motions. Like, who is this guy? Why should I care? And then he immediately finds out, like, oh, I guess I should care about this guy. But it's kind of interesting, um, because we get one shot of him reading Infinite Jest. We get more time of him actually reading the acclaim of Infinite Jest um, <laughs> and kind of obsessing himself with the response that David Foster Wallace is getting from his novel and even from his own girlfriend who is in, in Wrapped um, in Infinite Jest and uh, who David Foster Wallace then kind of later on uh, plays to his advantage, weirdly enough, because he's presented himself as a guy who really can't talk to women, who can't really solicit anything from women. Um but who is fundamentally lonely. And then he puts on a completely different face with Jesse Eisenberg's girlfriend, with David Lipsky's girlfriend, um, who he, who he prods to call on the phone after hearing that she's obsessively reading infinite jest. Mm-hmm. Um, so right there, you, you get an indication that you're not necessarily dealing with the person who he presents himself to be. Um, and you're not ever really entirely sure how much of David Foster Wallace is, artifice and he's very aware too because he even at one point says you know people ask him about his bandana and why he wears it and he has a very practical reason for doing it because he um of how much he perspires and he's also a former tennis player um but that now people kind of view it as an affectation and so he's kind of not sure whether to keep doing it um because if he were to stop then people would say that he's you know self-aware and like trying to present himself as a normal guy rather than just being a normal guy, you know, or whether, you know, it's a very, uh, it's very self, he's such a self-conscious person. And I think that extends to, um, what he is willing to present because he, he's knowingly presenting an image of himself. And I think he, the more he's, um, kind of lets his every guyness seep into, uh, his public persona, the, um, more he feels, uh, I don't know. The, the more, I guess, it, it's not it's not clear whether he's like using that to manipulate people or whether he, that's that's how he actually identifies or whether there's a different motivation behind it entirely. And that's kind of why I found the movie fascinating is because it's a constant game of of uh, of, of not just you know male artistic ego playing out, although that certainly does factor. That's in. at play here, definitely. That's definitely at play, but um, also just in terms of public perception and who you you know, who you mold yourself after. Because David Lipsky certainly has, like, a, a level of 
especially toward the beginning, like looks to David Foster Wallace almost, almost as a big brother. And he mm-hmm. wants to do what David Foster Wallace does. And he wants to even uh, change little aspects of his own life to become more like David Foster Wallace. Um, and, you know, there, there's a line toward the end of the movie where uh, it's David Lipsky saying, you know, I, I'm paraphrasing, but basically like I wanted what David had and David didn't want what he had basically. Or, yeah. <laughs> um, which I think is a bad line. And I also think it's not reflective of what the actual movie's about. Yeah, no, I was, I was really, so, at some points I was concerned with the direction of the movie. Like it was, un, it felt unclear to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that definitely highlighted it. It was one of the highlights of my confusion. I think too, like there were, there were certain times where, especially toward the end of the movie, where David Lipsy seeks to sort of like call out David Foster Wallace for being the way he is, and maybe some of his hypocrisies. And then, you know, David Foster Wallace would counter back at David Lipsky. And then in those in those scenes, I wasn't quite sure what point the film was trying to make. Uh, these are. I want to be clear. These are very soft criticisms I'm leveling. They 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 did not show up as big things for me because, over despite my reservations about, uh, or my initial reservations about wondering why this was a movie, not just like an an interesting interview I was reading, um, it, the film delivered in more, in more than one way, and the film managed to counteract my concerns. So. Because overall, yeah, yeah. Jason Siegel, I think, driven by performances, this film was incredible. Because I, yeah. as I said, I was not prepared for Jason Siegel in this much of a transformative, dramatic role. Because uh, I believed him, I believed that he became his character, became David Foster Wallace, and in, in you know, in, in the cheesiest way possible, you could say that, but still. Yeah, I've kind of avoided talking about his performance um, because I may be a little bit more mixed on it than a lot of people have been. I certainly think he does better than I was expecting by a long shot. Mm-hmm. He, um, I don't know, I, I was afraid it was going to be like uh, glaringly obvious throughout that it's Jason Siegel in a David Foster Wallace costume um, and trying to be <laughs> a serious, dramatic actor. Um, and only at very fleeting moments did I feel a hint of that. But for the most part, he's completely convinced uh, he, he's not putting on uh a fake nose and a, a, a fake nose yeah he's not <laughs> he, he's not steve carell um no he's not, he's not steve carell and fox catcher no he, he he sold me on his uh you know it, it seems like a fairly unselfconscious performance as opposed to david foster wallace himself who's consciously putting on a performance um it's actually actually honestly my problem may actually come more from the script um and how it depicts david foster wallace than from jason siegel himself um, so you do definitely not need, need to read Infinite Chess before seeing this movie. Um, and you don't really, I, I don't like telling people you need to read something before you see a movie because that, that goes against this, you know, movies as their own independent art form. But I read, before I saw this movie, I read David Foster Wallace's book of essays, a supposedly fun thing I'll never do again. Um, <laughs> which is actually, I think, a really good companion to the movie because it's his, it's him in a more conversational tone and kind of, um, directing his wit and acumen to pop culture as opposed to, you know, this mammoth novel that's, you know, insanely difficult to get into, but also, you know, mind-bogglingly complex. Um, so I read that, and I feel like that David Foster Wallace is who's reflected in Jason Siegel's uh, performance and, and the conversations they have, particularly about, like, you know, uh, mankind's relation to uh, television and the internet and how it's kind of affecting... Um, you know, how there's so many more event, you know, receptacles for pleasure nowadays and, you know, what 
you know how crippling that is to the human soul to have to have be essentially overexposed to pleasure and after reading the book i can't i couldn't help but see the script and its depiction of david foster wallace is almost like what like david foster wallace light it's it's like college frats it's a college frat boys like cliff notes of david foster wallace hmm. which mind you i mean this is david foster wallace who's not writing this is him who's speaking who's like he even says himself at this point you know in the movie you could put me in a room with a bunch of books and like give me time to write something out and i could be really smart um that's not and, and I, know, I actually i like that line you know he was saying like if i, I if no, i have time I to prepare too. i can be really smart i can be really no, witty and no uh, i did too i love that line actually um because i think it's revealing of who david foster wallace is and maybe explains a bit of the discrepancy i felt um because maybe the point was that he's you know a, he is a different person when he's trying to talk to somebody than when he's um you know when he's writing and that's Honestly, that's another reason why I, this may not even be necessarily a criticism, just an observation, because I'm not sure – I haven't read the David Lipsky book, and so I'm not really sure how much of this is reflected in his actual interview with David Foster Wallace. I'm sure that they listened to the recordings, and I'm sure mm. Jason Siegel studied that and th- that the, the script is informed by that conversation. So who knows? Maybe that's just how it actually went, um, but there seemed to be – something kind of lost between the page and the person. And like I said, that that may be – that may actually be a point of uh, – you know – a theme in the movie actually so yeah so maybe more an observation than a criticism i i really enjoyed it I, jesse Eisberg's performance was a bit more um it, it's n- not as remarkable to me i think I it's a bit more thinly veiled i will say it was... yeah it, it, his his jealousy comes through like very obviously and bluntly and that kind of you know i i don't i don't like um in a movie like this it's really nice when i don't necessarily know everything that's going on in a character's head um while they're talking, and with Jesse Eisenberg, I kind of felt like I did. But he's also a less complex person than David Foster Wallace, so... Yeah, um, I don't know, I think... I, I wonder, I I often wonder if Jesse Eisenberg is one of those, like, Ben Affleck-style actors that just needs, like, a, a really good director to show him, you know, to, to really display what he's good at. Um, I mean, The Social Network was his best role, I think, and it didn't really highlight anything much new about Jesse Eisenberg. It, you know, it, it showed that he could, you know, how brutally cunning he can be, but also didn't really uh, raise the gamut in terms of um, emotions or anything like that. You know, it's still a very dry, um, fast-talking, smart kid, you know, and that's kind of who he generally plays. So, I, I, you know, I don't think he has much of a range, but I think he can be used to great effect. And I... I I've seen him used better than here, but I also understand the, the logic in casting him in this role. Um, it was good, just not as layered as I would have liked, and that I feel like we got from Jason Siegel as David Foster Wallace. Um, yeah. Um, the, and A24. They're and still once doing again, it. Once again, this is A24, so thank God, uh, apparently, Dark Places, was that the one you saw? Yeah. Um, Dark Places didn't jinx him. Um, yeah, <laughs> the the one oh man, there's one more line I want to bring up before we we conclude conversation on end of the tour. Um, it's at the end, and it's not even a line; it's like a, a paused statement. But uh, it's when David Lipsky's giving David Foster Wallace's book, and uh, he makes an offhanded comment about like how the cover he he managed to get the cover at the same in all in in the UK as well as the US and like all over the world. And David Foster Wallace has this quick line. She's like, "What? I, I couldn't get that. How did you get that?" Yeah, he's like, and "Come he's on, like, you got the approval." On, you got... He didn't even like finish the line, no, but you stopped. knew what it was... was stopped because yeah. he knew that he was basically showing his hand at that one moment. Like, "I'm better than you. Why did you get this and not me?" And that's yeah. one interpretation of it. It could be multiple different uh, 
you know, multiple different motivations behind it. Um, that's the one that stood out to me, but I, I loved that. I thought that was one of the best, it might even be his last actual line in the movie. Um, well, besides the post-credit scene you didn't see, but yeah, besides the post-credit scene I didn't see, which it sounds like was completely, I don't know. I I didn't, I didn't leave it wondering why. I I mean, I didn't leave it saying like, Oh, this had to be post-credit. Like it easily could have been in the movie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, I, that that line was it, it was so telling of both of their characters really because like you know you see like Jesse Eisenberg sort of like brief satisfaction that he was able to do something that David Foster Wallace wasn't able to do and then you you do see that either anger jealousy disappointment surprise like it, it was a very complex layer of emotions that uh, you could read into Jason Siegel's delivery of that line um, yeah yeah and even, impressive um, yeah. I, I, I thought that was one that worked. I mean, there were other times when, um, like, David Lipsky would make a move, not, not intentionally or unintentionally, toward a girl that David Foster Wallace used to date um, and kind of had him violently react. Not violently. <laughs> just, just you know, volatilely react to it. And uh, those seemed a little bit more, like, knowing and forced and, and on the nose to me. But this was, like, a a very, like subtle, small, almost imperceptible moment that to- that tells you everything. Um, or tells you nothing. I don't know. It's, it's, it, it's kind of up to you to interpret, but it's, it's very, um, it's either way, it's something you can read a lot into. You can read as much as you want into it. So, yeah. um, yeah, I really enjoyed End of the Tour. It's, it's, I think my favorite film we talked about this week. It's, I don't know. It could be in the running for top of the year. I, I kind of, you know, I, I, I wouldn't, it's also not a movie I'd mind revisiting, you know? Yeah, they're, they're definitely, I've been seeing preview for some contenders. It looks like it's going to be a tight race this year, but... Uh, I hope you're right. Yeah, I uh, I don't know, this one's, this one's pretty great. Uh, do we know what we're going to do in the future at all? Do we, do we have an idea? I don't think so. I think we're just getting back into the groove now. Um, and who knows, maybe I, it'll be time to bust out another another third segment for this next episode. Oh, I think here. we should, for sure. We haven't done that in a few times. And yeah, we got to... We're kind of planning some more conceptual stuff in the future, so I think now that we're... <laughs> Oops. Barring any, you know, tragedies, I think we can kind of start getting more creative with stuff like that now. Yeah, yeah. And again, just as a reminder, the next, the next uh, forgotten favorite we're going to be doing. Uh, I don't know if we're doing it next next week or week after, whenever. It's going to be Ruthless People. It's a comedy film. Came out in '86, I think, by well, uh, starring Danny DeVito and Bette Midler. Hilarious. Mm-hmm. I love it. I'm going to tell everyone why. And we're also thinking about uh, talking about some directors who are up and comers. Yep. And uh, also high concept movies, so keep an eye out for stuff like that. Yeah. Um, but that's all in the future. Yeah, and it was a great show this week. It's going to be a great show next week. And as always, thank you for listening.